Hi everyone, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and you're listening to episode 44. Today's guest is Adil Hussein, who is the author of a brilliant book called Revenge, Politics and Blasphemy in Pakistan. Together we're going to take a deep dive into the history of blasphemy in South Asia, but specifically in Pakistan. We trace the history of blasphemy from colonial India to present times and look at how big of a role blasphemy plays in today's politics, in society and within the legal frameworks. It's such an eye-opening book, I highly recommend it. Also, podcasting is rough, it takes a lot of time and energy. Don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining. But if you're enjoying it and you want to support, then do consider being a patron. Just visit brownhistorypodcast.com and it's a very simple process. Your contribution goes a long way, trust me on that. And thank you so much for listening. And let's move forward. Here we go. This is such a brilliant book. I really, really enjoyed reading it. Um, you know, I read it in two days and my brain is still processing it, but there is so much going on in the, in the book. It's well written and it, it takes your understanding of Pakistan to the next level, which, you know, really helps me a lot because Pakistani politics is very complicated. For me, it was really hard to figure out how to start this because there are so many ways we can we can start this. But I figured maybe it's best if you just give us an intro of what the book is about and the title of the book is revenge politics and blasphemy in pakistan and i think everybody understands what blasphemy means but could you define it in the context of pakistan because we all know that you know pakistan is very sensitive when it comes to saying something negative about islam and that's putting it lightly well first of all thank you so much for having me asun and uh, let's just jump straight into the book so essentially maybe it's going to help for the listeners if i just give like a brief intro of how i came to writing this book so i wanted to understand something that was very simple in essence and that is why in Pakistan, a lot of the big constitutional controversies that we've seen over the last 70 years have circled around the idea of blasphemy. So whereas in other countries, when we look about when we look at what people are debating over, it's issues that have to do with social justice, it's issues that have to do with equality, but it's not necessarily issues that have a specific theological underpinning. And in order to understand that theological underpinning, I try to decipher the backstory of blasphemy in Pakistan. And to figure out the backstory in Pakistan, I had to go back all the way into the um, colonial history of um, India and find what I consider to be like the first debate that happened between Muslims and non-Muslims regarding blasphemy and that culminated into this sort of vigilante killings that have become very widespread and widely accepted in large parts of the populations in the Indian subcontinent. So both in um, India, as we've tragically seen in recent events and in Pakistan. So I really came to this question, trying to understand the sort of legal matrix of Pakistan, and then went all the way back and tried to figure out what the backstory of um, those blasphemy killings were. And so, in terms of structure, the book is like um, kind of very, um, is, is structured in a very straightforward manner. So it begins with a specific um um, murder, and it tries to um, it, it tries to disentangle the sort of social and political and legal impact that those um, killings had. Um, yeah. So, so you said that it all started with uh, a Hindu-Muslim conflict or an argument, a dispute. Can we go back to the start and where it all, where where the seeds started to show? So, maybe just to outline the kind of conventional views that have been floating around um, regarding Hindu-Muslim conflict. So, when you open up a textbook in India or Pakistan, you know there's multiple ways in which we can approach this historical um, issue. In Pakistani textbooks, we would see that there's a type of separate Muslim identity that have existed for that has existed for thousands of years and um, it always was in some type of antagonistic conflict with um, Hinduism and eventually um, Indian Muslims um, liberated themselves from that um, um, majoritarian Hindu influence and created their own nation state. On the other hand, there's a view that no, it's always been more syncretic. So Hindus and Muslims have lived like peacefully together. And essentially what we saw happen in 1947 with partition was a kind of misunderstanding, right? So it was um, political mm. leaders who were fed up of um, 
um, trying to go through the sort of very thorny constitutional negotiations around the roundtable um, conferences and later on um, with the cabinet mission plan and then decided to sort of break up and create um, two separate um, nation states, the state of India and the state of Pakistan. So both of these schools would see the emergence of um, blasphemy as a touchstone for identity formation differently. So say the primordialist kind of view on this issue would say that, well, Muslims have always been very sensitive regarding um, insults against the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And there's some truth to that. So insults against the Prophet Muhammad, um, peace be upon him, have always stirred up some type of um, reaction. But the very specific reactions that we see in um, the subcontinent, especially in the late colonial era, where people are seeing it as a kind of moral imperative to go out and commit um, that type of um, violence is something that we don't really see in all Muslim societies around the globe. And it's certainly not something that we have seen in many other centuries within the Indian subcontinent. So when we look at other sort of controversy that circled around the issue of blasphemy, then say the Bareil v. Deobandi divide in the 19th century comes to mind. So the Bareil v. Deobandi divide was really about the Bareilvis who constitute like the majority in the subcontinent. Can, before, before you continue, can you just explain the terms so people know what you're talking about? Yeah, so Bareilvis um, trace their doctrinal sort of origin um, through a specific devotional love to the Prophet Muhammad. So when we look at like specific Sufi orders, they would be closer to the Bareilvi school than they would be to a sort of specific rationalistic modernist version of understanding religion that in India showed itself in the garb of Deobandi Islam. So Deobandis were this sort of kind of more um, rationally, textually minded um, um, scholars who took their inspiration, even though there's a little bit of dispute of that, from the sort of Wahhabi revivalism that we also saw in the Arabian Peninsula. So it was a specific textualist tradition that tried to rid um, Islam of anything cultural of anything that was an addition they believed to the basic original tenets um, of Islam. Okay. And the, the key sort of blasphemy dispute that emerged between these groups were the um, Bareilvis accusing the Deobandis of committing blasphemy by not giving the Prophet Muhammad um, the right, um, by not showing deference enough to the Prophet, but by considering him a mere human who had, of course, um, a specific prophetic mission, but who could not um, transcend that very mission. Whereas in the Brevi um, theological doctrine, the prophet has powers that would make him stand quite apart from um, from a regular sort of human, right? So they have a specific notion that um, he can be present um, anywhere at any given time um, and illuminate, illuminate spiritually um, the people who devote uh, their lives to him. And the Bareilvis felt that the Ubandis, with their sort of um, very rationalistic approach of saying that, well, he was, in essence, um, mere human, they felt that that was an attack on the role that the Prophet Muhammad uh, peace be upon him, has uh, played in history and still continues to play. Um, but those controversies never ended in violence, let alone large-scale violence, and they never really stirred up a large group of people to the same extent that we see blasphemy accusations stir up entire groups of people in the late 19th century. So when we want to look what 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 um, my contribution to this debate really is, is that instead of looking at an intra-Muslim conversation regarding the role and status of the Prophet, um, peace be upon him, 
Um, it may be more fruitful to look at religious revivalist groups that were emerging in the Punjab in the 1900s. And those revivalist groups, or the two that I identified, which I believe to have um, set out many of the key terms in the blasphemy debate that we're still talking about, um, is the Hindu revivalist movement called Arya Samaj and um, a group that has now been um, termed non-Muslim, but at the time was um, still acceptable, the Ahmadiyya of Ghadian. So for people who don't know what is what uh, what differs uh, the Ahmadi sect from the other Muslim sects, and at the same time, I think a lot of people are familiar that right now in the current state, Ahmadi, the Ahmadi sect is very uh, marginalized, oppressed, and don't really have uh, a say in things in Pakistani politics and society. But what was it for Ahmadis at that time and how? Because I was surprised to read that they were pretty influential at that time and accepted, I think. So I want to know what their um, position was in society and politics. And I wanted to know, and I guess for the people who are listening, what makes an Ahmadi Muslim an Ahmadi Muslim and uh and what was the dispute about between them and this other Hindu sect the the, the basic um con- the, the basic novelty about um Ahmadis is that they believe that their founder a man called Mirza Ghulam Ahmad um that he was sent in order to reform the Muslim faith And because he was on the mission to reform the Muslim faith, he was in direct communication with um, God. And um, this communication led him to claim certain things that um, that are somewhat controversial within um, Muslim theology. One of the things was that he claimed that he was in direct communication with God and he was receiving revelation. That was a very straightforward thing that some people raised their eyebrows over. The other thing was that he successively claimed that he had a prophetic status. Um, He initially began by saying that he was uh, Mahdi, so a prophesized reformer that was to come to sort of um, bring the faith forward. Later on, um, he strengthened this claim and said that he was also Messiah, which means that he had come as the rebirth of Jesus and also as the rebirth of Krishna, the Hindu prophet. And that, of course, as you can imagine, stirred up quite some controversy even at the time. So it wasn't that the Ahmadis, even in their inception, were widely accepted, mm-hmm. but they were accepted within a specific um for a specific task because they were accomplishing a specific task and the task was that in north india and punjab where there were where there was a new middle class forming we're thinking now about the um turn of the century so the turn of the 20th century so a new group of um merchants is settling down a middle class is emerging a salariat as one would say today is emerging And the Ahmadis were very successful in converting um, these urban professionals to their faith by instilling a new sense of um, religious pride um, into them. And they instilled this religious pride by um, um, engaging in controversial debates with other religious groups. So we have, I think it's best to sort of think about it as a way in which um, different groups at the time saw or saw a specific moment in history where they could convert people again. Um, in the sense that a lot of Muslims try to convert Hindus to Islam and a lot of um, Hindus try to convert um, Muslims to Hinduism. And in that debate, the people who were very influential were these revivalist movements, because those were the ones who were at the forefront of these conversion efforts. And the Ahmadis were accepted um, in the framework that they were trying to um, hold Muslims um, of North India, especially of Punjab, to convert to Christianity and to Hinduism. And at the same time, they were going and having debates with um, other revivalist sects. And they were having these debates mainly because the Muslim ulama in the seats of learning, say the people who were in Farangi Mahal and Deoband and all the other places where we had Muslim seminaries, were not willing to engage in open 
um, discussions with, uh, say, the Arya Samaj and, you know, people like Dayanand Saraswati um, or somebody like Pandit Lekram, who features prominently in the book. So here we have a group that was um, partially accepted as like an organ that could defend the frontiers of faith. But at the same time, there was a lot of doubt over their own status within the Muslim community. And pretty much when um, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad made his claims, there were people and ulama who were denouncing him and his claim and saying that he had become a gaffer for um, transcending the boundaries of religious faith. How does blasphemy play into his, how does his role come into blasphemy? Yeah, so what I show in the book is that blasphemy was kind of like the key tool that he used in order to engage in um, theological debate with other faiths. So whereas we had um, interreligious discourse um, for hundreds um, of years on the Indian subcontinent, the Mughal um, conqueror um, Akbar usually comes to mind who had a court which um, had uh, groups of different religious um, um, clerics who were speaking to each other quite um, on a regular basis and very um, intensely. I do feel what really changed was that for um, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the key thing became about spectacles. So this was not a scholarly debate that we would assume um, coming out of the confines of um, um, Farangi Mahal or Deoband, but this was really um, in a way, a bombastic um, exchange that would often lead to immediate um, what he called revelations about people dying. So it, picture it, I think it's best to picture it like this. So here's um, two um, two scholars that would meet. So Mirza Ghulam Ahmed would be there, you know, representing the sides of the Muslims. And then you would have somebody representing the Arya Samaj. Very often that was a um, uh, Dayanan Saraswati or Likram or somebody else. And while having this debate, they would hire the stakes. And eventually, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed would say that the other person had committed blasphemy and would die within like two years, five years, 10 years. It really depends on the debate. But blasphemy really became a tool in order to convince people of the truth um, of his movement. And that is really, I feel, how blasphemy um, entered into the wider conversation in colonial India. Just to clarify, he didn't himself kill anybody, right? No, it's a, it's a, it's a prophecy. So he would say that the other person would die and that um, um, God had prophesied that to him. Um, and in the case of Likram, which is like the first uh, chapter of my book, um, I track that one conversation and how it sort of unfolded. If I think of blasphemy, I think of violence. How did blasphemy and violence start to kind of become one thing in this in this context, in this dispute? I mean, it's one of it's, it's a very um heavy question. And that's really the question that I try to um, address with the book. I do believe that the link between blasphemy and violence happened when the conceptual um, category that we had um, for how to react to blasphemy changed from having it as something that will be dealt with in the hereafter. So we commit uh, or somebody commits a specific act of blasphemy and then he is punished by God in the hereafter. That was like a very mainstream kind of belief. Um, two, that um, somebody commits blasphemy and it becomes an individual sort of moral responsibility of the Muslim believer to avenge that blasphemy. So that wasn't there in the early part of the 19th century, but towards the mid 20th century, it seems to be that um, even within a fringe, it's become fairly mainstream, that um, it's an individual moral responsibility on the believer to avenge acts of blasphemy. And we see that really as being at the crux of the big um, 
the big issue that we really see unfolding in Pakistan, where we constantly have acts of vigilante killings that don't really stop with non-Muslims anymore, but even um, politicians um, have been um, assassinated. And then the, the aftermath of these events is really this odd interplay where the um, state is seeking to punish the person who has committed that act, but at the same time um, also tries to uphold this specific, um, what they feel is a scriptural authority on how to prosecute um, blasphemy. So just to summarize, before before the independence of Pakistan and India, in the Indian subcontinent, you would have debates between Hindu sects and Muslim sects, and they would get really ugly and really nasty. And people listening in, reading the pamphlets that were passed around, they would take that as an insult. And a Muslim would end up killing or assassinating uh, one of the uh, a leader of that Muslim sect, and then it would be then another Muslim, uh, then another uh, Hindu member would take over, and then it would continue the cycle. Okay, so that was the cycle, right? Where you had two uh, sects disputing with each other, and then people would get offended, and and one of them would kill the the leader of the Hindu sect. How did that go from that to putting blasphemy in the legal framework of of society of the Indian subcontinent? And by the way, what were the British up to while this was all happening? <laughs> the British were up to um, no good, as you probably yeah. know. Um, but um, essentially, um, so so essentially, and that's um, the story that I track in my book, is that a lot of the members that were involved um, with these two revivalist movements became very influential in mobilizing politically. So they were very influential. So members of the Arya Samaj became very influential through people like Swami Shraddhanand in the newly founded All India Congress Party. For those who don't know, the All India Congress Party was really the big anti-colonial movement that produced the the um, second biggest decolonial moment after Britain lost the lost America. So mm. um, here we have this um, big movement, and the movement is mainly relying upon um, professionals, a lot of lawyers. These lawyers are both from um, from the region of Bengal, but many of them are from the Punjab, and in the Punjab, many of them. Um, have direct links to the Arya Samaj movement. Um, so somebody like Lala Lajpat Rai, so these are really the greats of the Congress party. Somebody like Swami Shraddhanand are uh, outright Arya Samajis, which means that they've devoted quite a bit of their time to teach in the seminaries. And they believe in the basic message of Hindu revivalism. Um, and they are part of this kind of big um, project of... Um, um, decolonization. And on the other hand, within the um, Muslim nationalist um, movement, we have a lot of people um, in the initial um, formation who are close to the um, Ahmadiyya group. And that makes it, um, um, I believe, that helped in order to bring those early debates. There were very much provincial debates that were taking place with a couple of thousand people um, following them that really brought them to national um, attention. And later on, and I would think here in the 1930s and 40s, it became a tool for political mobilization. Um, it became very clear that when the Muslim League um, needed to bring people to the streets, that um, specific um, that the specific language that was developed um, in the Arya Samaj Ahmadiyya conversation proved very useful for motivating um, young men to take to the streets. So it was like the way Americans would blame immigrants. And if American politicians want votes and to do get things done, they'd use immigrants as a way to kind of get people to riled up just the same way. 
Yes, and which is not to say not to downplay the problem, not to downplay that there was really a problem in which um, Hindu, the Hindu majority within the Congress Party tried to really bully Muslims through different means, and one of the means was to write disparagingly about the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So I'm not taking that away. I'm just saying mm-hmm. that it was also used as a sort of um, political tool for mobilization. So all these disputes, this tension, the, is that what played a big role in the violence of partition? Because this was all taking place in Punjab. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a couple of things that really go into the violence that we see unfold in uh, in uh, in, in the Punjab during um, partition. I do feel that there is, like, the, the the broadest way to approach it is to say that it was an administrative failure in the sense that the executive at that point, um, for the most parts, that was Mountbatten as the viceroy, um, refused to deploy any troops in order to quell the early um, violence that had sort of unfolded. So the massive killings can't really, I feel, be brought down to any specific um, mindset Mm -hmm. that you could find within a population, but it was just a specific frenzy that um, at that stage in history we hadn't really seen unfold anywhere else but it also happened in a vacuum where the executive had completely withdrawn and um, there was hardly any um, military presence or hardly any attempt to sort of um, quell the violence that was unfolding. The second thing was it was happening after the Second World War. It's an aspect that people generally underestimate, but a large part of the war, the Second World War that Britain fought was also through the help of the Indian Army. Um, And the British Indian Army consisted mainly um, of people from North India. Now, the reasons for that are a bit obscure, but the British believed in the martial race theory and the belief that the races of the North were kind of um, um, better suited for military service. So they recruited them to a higher extent. And then we had an entire generation of young men who were coming back armed and who had just seen the devastating atrocities of the Second World War. And they were armed and um, thrown into this um, anarchic moment of 47. And um, yeah. Okay, so let's say, okay, so now it's 1947 and Pakistan is a brand new, fresh country. It's a, it's a Muslim-majority country now. So it's what they wanted. And blasphemy, there's no one to really use blasphemy against because it's majority Muslim. If blasphemy is the main character of the story, what happens to blasphemy now? What changes you know, come and, and how does blasphemy evolve or does it go away? So blasphemy doesn't really go away. So in the 47 moment, we have to sort of um, think about a greater Pakistan than we know today. We have two wings of Pakistan, East and West Pakistan. And we have quite a big um, population of non-Muslims in East Pakistan. So West Pakistan... Because of the violence, um, essentially, we see a type of purge of all non-Muslim minority groups. Of course, there's a couple of, not a couple, but there's like um, several tens of thousands of Christians who remain, um, especially of the the Dalit community. But essentially, what we see is that the the Western wing of Pakistan um, essentially is... um, overwhelmingly Muslim majority. And the Eastern wing is still very much mixed. So when we talk about the story of blasphemy going away, it can't fully go away because there's still a large Hindu population that has remained in Pakistan. Um, But what we see is that it turns. So the violence that was initially um, articulated um, against non-Muslims now quells over and reheats the sort of um, Sunni-Shia dispute that we see um, bubbling up again in West Pakistan. But the violence is now also targeted against um, Ahmadis. So people go back and they discover um, a couple of um, 
a couple of um, essays that have been written by Muhammad Iqbal, the great poet and the great sort of thinker behind the um, idea of Pakistan, who many believe together with Muhammad Ali Jinnah had really created the conceptual foundations of the state. And they discover those um, um, those essays that he had written um, very explicitly in order to um, cast out Ahmadis of counting as Muslims. And Iqbal has been very vehement about it because he believes that if the only thing that is holding Pakistan together is the um, is, is the metaphysical connection that all Muslims have with each other, then any um, sort of disruption in that sort of higher force would lead to a disintegration of the Muslim community and Pakistan as a state. Um, and he therefore um, pushed very strongly in the late 1930s to say that um, as a matter for constitutional law, Ahmadis should not be part of any political community. That doesn't mean that he um, um, went um, out and said that there should be um, large-scale violence um, that should be expressed against them or any of that, but essentially that they should not be part of the political community of a Muslim-majority um, nation-state. Um, so when we really go into um, 47, we see that people are rediscovering these ideas and they're trying to enforce them through street prote protests. So we have a lot of anti-Ahmadi protests that culminate in this 1953 moment where the first state of emergency is declared in Pakistan and the army um, um, comes in and um essentially takes over the um the uh, the the running the day-to-day -day running of uh of an entire province wow. and they do this in order to protect lives of course but at the same time you know we have this link re-emerging where um outrage over um blasphemy is leading through to a political transformation of the state now everybody is outraged against Ahmadi Muslims in um, in Pakistan in that era. But right now it's just outrage. How does it go from being outraged to being a like a law to be? Uh, if people people who are listening, they don't. If you don't know, um, in current Pakistan, if uh, if you're an Ahmadi, then you're legally considered non-Muslim, and then you become a target for a lot of oppressive laws and oppressive political tactics. So it's tough being an Ahmadi in Pakistan, it really is. Yeah, so going back to the question, how do we go from being an outrage to being law? Okay, so, so the first key thing that, 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 that really takes place is the um, independence of Bangladesh. So we have an entire wing of the country that is now finding that it's not been treated very nicely by West Pakistan. So East Pakistan feels that they're being discriminated against, and they have good reasons for that feeling, mm -hmm. because more people live in the East than do in the West. We have this one big um, election that takes place. Uh, Sheikh Mujib um, has the most votes um, and should be sworn in as prime minister of Pakistan. And on the other hand, we have a young man, um, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, the founder of the PPP. Um, and he doesn't think that a leader from the East could rule Pakistan. So what he does is um, refuse to um, accept this um, new um, government and then we have um, the violence that unfolds in the East and eventually the Bengalis declaring a national independence with the help of um, India. Um, and after that moment, the very key questions that um, people are asking themselves um, are re-emerging. So why Pakistan? If it didn't work to hold Muslims together, um, but led to another partition within a very short time span, um, is that idea even viable? And in order to re-emphasize that that idea is very viable, we see an increased interest in a specific um, theological language that is being used by politicians who otherwise identify themselves as very much on the left. So Zulfkar Ali Bhutto is the person who brings about the constitutional amendment in order to ban Ahmadi. So it doesn't come... Um, through, say, Ziaul Haq, the military ruler, who's generally um, 
and rightly considered to have nudged Pakistan towards a, a kind of shariatic ideal. But it's Sufkar Ali Bhutto who comes and um, pushes for the constitutional amendment, the second amendment to the constitution, and declares Ahmadis as um, non-Muslims. And also that any acts that they do, which would be mimicking Muslim behavior, are also considered as blasphemous now. What's the crime? What's the punishment if they act like Muslims? I mean, the punishment really varies. Um, in the penal code, um, it goes all the way. Like if you um, insult the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, can all go all the way to the death um, sentence. Um, it's also a mandatory death sentence, which was like a sharpening of that rule that the Supreme Court. Um, that the Supreme Court introduced in the early 90s. And to my knowledge, it hasn't been revoked. So I do think it's a mandatory death sentence if it is proven that the um, insult was directed um, against the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Um, after him, uh, Ziaul Huq takes over and he becomes the leader of Pakistan. Uh, what role did he play with uh, blasphemy? Ziaul Haqqa always found to be like a very interesting character within the history of Pakistan. So generally, particularly from the liberal elites and, you know, most people who are engaging with academic ideas tend to be somewhat related to that um, group, English speaking, etc., um, has been really seen as like this um, monstrous figure who sort of um, hijacks Pakistani politics and transforms it completely. But after reading a lot of his speeches and also tracking how he enters the Pakistani political um, system, I have to say that Ziaul Haq doesn't really bring very many innovations as much as he tries to enforce um, or tries to hold the country um, to the laws that he believes have been um, um, or, or hold the country to account to the constitutional ideas that were there in its founding moment. Let's put it like this, right? Mm -hmm. So Ziaulak doesn't believe that he's bringing like something new, but he does believe that the promise of Pakistan is very much what he's bringing to the, to the, to the country. And, um, Ziaul Haq is very much a creation of um, um, the colonial um, India. So he goes to the top institutions. Um, at that time, it's a college called St. Stephen's, still very competitive to enter. It's in Delhi. Um, he studies economics, um, ranks first in the undergrad tripos, which um, at the time was um, not easy, then enters the military and then has a very distinguished sort of military career and is then promoted to the chief of army staff over the head of other senior generals by Zulfkar Ali Bhutto. The reason that he promotes Ziaul Haq is because he believes that um, um, Ziaul Haq can be... Um, that Zia, that he's promoting Ziaul Haq over his head, essentially, and therefore he will be very pliable to any demands that um, Zulfkar um, Ali Bhutto will have of him. Um, but Zia very quickly develops ahead of his um, own and um, um, begins to um, undermine the political leadership of um, Bhutto, um, stages a coup and imprisons Bhutto and sentences him to death for um, several several accusations that keep changing. Um, but um, essentially, he says that he ordered um, uh, killing. And he presents um, more or less witnesses um, to that account. And Sulfkar Ali Bhutto is um, um, then hanged. Um, once Sulfkar Ali Bhutto is hanged, Ziaul Haq um, goes about of transforming the legal system according to the constitutional conventions that he feels um, um, should have been in place right from the beginning, so right from 1947. And he believes that there should be a parallel shariatic legal structure with Sharia courts who, where people can go both for their um, 
um, for issues regarding inheritance, divorce, etc., but also for um, criminal acts. So criminal acts should also be judged according to the so-called Hadood um, ordinances that he introduces. So Islamic punishments in an Islamic country is essentially his um, credo at the time. And what he also does is um, starts a very strong new drive in order to exclude um, Ahmadis from public life. So whereas Bhutto very opportunistically included the Second Amendment to the Constitution, which um, criminalized specific behaviors that um, uh, the Ahmadis could do by posing as Muslims, it's really Ziaul Haq who enforces all of these rules and who says that now is the time for me to um, sort of be very strict on that movement. And that's also really the big um, that's also really the big moment. So the 80s are the big moments where many of the um, Ahmadis leave Pakistan. I'm not sure how many um, are still left in the state, probably um, somewhere between 100 and 200,000 from my calculations. But that's really the big moment where they start leaving um, Pakistan and settle in other countries because they can no longer hold public offices and they're excluding from much of the public life in the, in the, in the Republic. After he, after he gets killed in a plane crash, uh, after him, I think, is Benazir Bhutto that, uh, that takes over the chair. Now, she's like, uh, you know, studied in the West, the modern day woman. How does she do? What does she do when she's up there? Well, Benazir is really the the, the person that a lot of um, people um, hope will bring about the sort of change and usher Pakistan into modernity. Um, she studies, as you rightly say, in the US and then later on at um, Oxford. Um, returns to Pakistan with really a big vision, but very quickly becomes a kind of power politicians, as we have seen her father be for the longest time. So rather than um, slowing down on the path that Ziaul Haq has taken, we see her essentially just continuing with the same politics because she needs the vote bank and she needs the party seats um, that are held by people who feel very strongly about issues regarding theology, the Ahmadi controversy, and blasphemy against the prophet. Peace be upon him. So we don't really see much um, change during mm -hmm. her reign. And the same is, of course, true for Nawaz Sharif, who then takes over. Um, and then we have this long sort of back and forth and then the emergence of a party that really takes this old debate um, as its um, banner, the Tariqe Labak Ya Rasulullah, um, and who surprisingly wins more than 2 million votes in the 2018 elections and really shifts the entire dynamics of the um, Republic by being able to hold the state hostage by staging big um, darnas and uh, yeah, currently Imran Khan, um, any any did he is he a hostage of the of the politics that he's that he entered or is he someone who has made some significant change and is is these political parties that you're talking about especially the one right now that you mentioned how influential are they now and how powerful are they? I mean, it's really difficult to um, assess their. Um, it's really difficult to assess their power in this very current moment where everything seems to be in flux, right? Where we had a change in government recently. True. I um, mean, just like a few years before that. In general, they have a lot of street muscle in the sense that they could bring um, Islamabad, Rawalpindi, to a grinding halt as they have done in the past. And the um, they have uh, they can assert their pressure both on the army and on parliament, um, and they've developed a, a much bigger vote bank than anybody had 
ever thought possible for uh, outspokenly religious party to gain in a place with such entrenched politics such as Pakistan, mm-hmm. where many of the seats are held by the so-called electables. And, you know, it was always thought that it, it was rather impossible for people or novel parties sort of break into it. So the TLP has managed to do that. Now, Imran Khan's role hasn't really been um, in one line. So it's kind of difficult to see um, where he is going to stand on this um, issue in the future. What about in the few in the last few years? In the last few years, he's tried to avoid the issue by sidestepping it. So we had this one appointment of um, Atif Mia, who's an e- economist professor um, yeah. over at Princeton um, University, also, I believe, a convert to the um, Ahmadiyya movement. And that caused quite a stir when Imran Khan decided to appoint him to his economic steering committee, pretty much unpaid position from what I understand. Um, but um, there were protests, um, people threatened to leave his party, and Imran Khan gave in. And the um, interview I think that he gave at the time was that um, he didn't know that Atif Mia belonged to that specific group, otherwise he wouldn't have suggested him. Now, one could make of that sentence, um, one could interpret it in both ways. One is that, well, Imran Khan also believes that there's no place for this group within the um, um, higher administration and anything that has to do with sovereign power in the state of Pakistan, even in in an advisory capacity. Or it could mean that he's trying to, if he wanted to um, interpret it in a sort of more positive light, it could mean that, you know, in the future he foresees that um, that could change. But for now, he doesn't want to make it an issue, um, given that he doesn't have an overwhelming majority, or at that point, an overwhelming majority of seats behind him to back him in that. Um, And also, it took quite a bit of time for Imran Khan to actually come out and make a statement. The initial statements were done I think it was by his um by his by one of his ministers, um Fawad Jodhri, who actually defended the appointment and said, like, well, that's who we're going to run with before they made the U-turn. I think it was about a week or 10 days that it took him to sort of turn around. Um, so maybe they were feeling their way into it and see how much how big of a controversy would really be and um if they could pull through with it. Um, or maybe they just um, didn't know, and you know, it took them some time to um, come around to that. Um, but really, in terms of an alternative, there is no political party, to my knowledge, that has come out in direct support of the of the Ahmadiyya movement. Um, Can they? The, I mean, if they did, wouldn't that mean violence for them and and get sure, them killed? I, I, I do feel that the MQM, like the old leader of the MQM, Aldaf Hussain, once came very close, but he had a very eccentric style of both delivering his message. Um, sometimes he would just break into um, singing songs and, you know, addressing large scale audiences, mainly from London, where he's in exile. Um, And I think he spoke somewhat sympathetically about this issue, but I do feel no party really um no party would go so far as to say that they want to change the constitution in order to exclude the or to to erase the uh, amendment that is banning um ahmadis from being recognized as um as muslims i don't i don't see that um i don't really see that happening we we're talking a lot about ahmadis and and how they're the the targets here but what about when it comes to other minority sects there's i mean obviously christianity and and hinduism and sikhs are all non-muslims but there's also a minority sect shia uh how have they all kind of dealt with this concept of blasphemy in the political legal framework of pakistan I mean, all minority groups in Pakistan have had to face the very harsh wind um, uh, um, regarding the very strict blasphemy legislation. I guess the most famous case um, that went all the way to the Supreme Court in Pakistan was the Asia Bibi case, where we had a farmhand um, illiterate um, in the Punjab who was accused of making accusations against the Prophet. And she was a Christian, um, also a member of the sort of Dalit 
Dalit community, um, a lot of the Dalits converted in the in in the colonial era to Christianity, um, and in that case, what we what we have seen is that um, all minority groups um, can be and are targeted with um, blasphemy accusations. And um, in that sense, even uh, Muslim groups like the um, Shias um, of Pakistan have faced um, increasing um, accusations um, of blasphemy in, in recent years. So we really see like the um, conversation around blasphemy and the legal debate around blasphemy um, drawing bigger and bigger um, circles as time goes on, so much so that it's become really um, one of the key um, issues that is being debated um, in Pakistani law and in Pakistani politics. We we started the conversation with uh, a dispute between a Hindu sect and the Ahmadi Muslims, right? And we went from there to all the way there. It's kind of ironic that it goes full circle where blasphemy starts against the Hindu sect from the Ahmadi sect, but then it kind of turns on themselves and, and they become the target. It's full circle, right? That's That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean right. that is the that is the thing that 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 that's really the irony of history that um the group that was um lobbying for all the legal changes regarding blasphemy that were pushing the colonial administration writing long letters for um anti-blasphemy legislation to be included in the penal code is the one that is being targeted of blasphemy um so it really comes back um um full circle and another ironic thing is that any any leader that promoted blasphemy ended up either being killed or I guess exiled. True. Which is another ironic thing. And then the next one kind of takes over and same thing happens to them. Except for Imran Khan, True. but kind of, we don't know what's gonna to happen to him yet. Um we were talking about so we were talking about blasphemy in the in the Islamic context, through the Islamic lens. But at the same time, if there was a blasphemy against Islam, there's also an opposing force, which is Hinduism. What about Hindu nationalism and blasphemy in the context of Hinduism? And how did that kind of start from that same dispute that we were talking initially? And where did that go? And Or does it even have a, a factor in, in Hindu nationalism today? It's, it's a really um, interesting development. And I address it in the epilogue of my book a little bit, because whereas um, the Ahmadiyya group was the one that was sort of kicked out, excluded, and, you know, had all of these um, constitutional dilemmas um, that eventually led to like their um, uh, declaration for being non-Muslims, the Arya Samaj retained its influence within the uh, within the uh, within uh, an Indian republic. Um, so both in terms of very keeping very close ties to the RSS, a sort of paramilitary um, group that is the ideological force behind the political party BJP, the Bharat Janata Party that is currently ruling in India. Um, to the um, early years of the Congress Party too, with leaders like Patel um, and others and Mukherjee who were very outspoken um, in their sympathies for the Arya Samaj movements. So whereas in Pakistan, we see an exclusion of that type of element, in India, we see an incorporation. So all the Arya Samaj is like fully incorporated into the really the leadership um, structure of the All India Congress Party and then any splinter parties that emerge from it in the next 70 years. Um, and we also see it with the um, leader um, Narendra Modi, who regularly goes and pays his um, respects to Dayanand Saraswati, the founder of the Arya Samaj movement, and who believes that his mission is really a continuation of the um, muscular sort of um, ideas that Dayanand Saraswati represented. Wow. So my last question, uh, violence and, and blasphemy is so rooted into Pakistani society now. Do you think that there's hope? Do you think there's ever going to be a time where we can get out of this? Um, yes. And the reason that I do believe that there's hope is that there's so many Muslim countries who've managed to deal with very similar issues of 
rapid uh, transformation, modernity, like whatever keyword you want to use here, but who've been able to handle them um, in, a, in a very um, good manner. Um, so I do believe that um, Pakistan doesn't have to be the exception here, right? Um, and with the right leadership and with a with with some um, politician who is um, willing and able to sort of move the debate in a different direction, that could shift. Does that mean that they will change the constitution regarding um, specific minority groups and their belonging to the Muslim faith? I don't know. Could could happen. It could not happen. Right? It's anybody's mm-hmm. guess. But in general, it is possible. So I don't. I do believe in the possibility of this change. Um, I'm not really sure if it is um, going to happen within the Our immediate uh, within the immediate future, though. It's just become like very, very entrenched um, issues that a lot of people have staked their political um, fortunes on. And whenever you have issues such as these, it becomes um, hard to make any immediate um, changes. Right. Is there anything you want to add or you want to mention? Um, do you want to uh, do you want to plug in your second book? If oh, anybody yeah. is so <laughs> the uh, the 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 book on um, Nehru really looks at the uh, looks at the other side of the debate, whereas the blasphemy book really tries to understand Pakistan's legal and constitutional history regarding the issue of blasphemy. The uh, Nehru book that I wrote with a very dear colleague of mine, Dripudaman Singh. Um, focuses on Jawaharlal Nehru, the leader of the Indian National Congress Party, and the debates that he had um, regarding the constitutional future of the Indian Republic. Where should it go? And those constitutional debates, um, interesting enough, are also held with uh, two Muslims, one of them being Muhammad Ali Jinnah, of course. Mm-hmm. At that point, the um, the president of the Muslim League, that is the party that later gave um, wind to the uh, Pakistan movement and eventually created the state. And the second one is Muhammad Iqbal, a conversation that is very often forgotten, but nonetheless um, sort of resurrected in, in our book on Nehru. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was great. Cool. I was really trying to um, have like a more sort of optimistic spin, but I guess it's always hard when you when your topic is blasphemy. Yeah, it is um, hard. Yeah, because no one will, no one will believe you. <laughs> it's just so hard. Like, I really I really do hope that they get their act together. Particularly, like other Muslim countries seem to be managing. Um, like who, who, what Muslim country changed their ways? Well, if you look at a place like Indonesia, they've been fairly good with it. If you look like a place, the UAE has been very good with it. Um, so not every Muslim majority country starts circling around blasphemy in the same way that, uh, that, that Pakistan has over the past 70 years, right? Where it becomes this all-consuming topic where so much energy is sort of poured into, you know, sort of going over it over and over again. Yeah. Um, and all of these energies could be used in more productive ways, right? Which, again, is not to underplay that, you know, um, blasphemy isn't a real issue. Like, it is a real issue. But at the yeah. same time, you know, it shouldn't be an all-consuming issue. It shouldn't be where your central energies for statecraft go it shouldn't be the reason that every time pakistan declares a state of emergency somehow it has to do with the group um that is um either committing blasphemy or that is uh trying to prevent blasphemy from happening right right shouldn't move to um um other um to 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 other topics like really shift the debate into another direction but with pakistan there's kind of with the pakistan population there's like a certain kind of default to violence mentality that that goes around where like violence is okay and violence is is uh is something that you just do without thinking i don't know it's there's like a scary part of it where it's just like if you say something someone can hurt you mm. that's what i always felt I mean, where difference between other muslim I mean, countries actually so so i mean if you if you read uh, colonial archives as much as I unfortunately have of the 1900s, you really see that it actually doesn't happen really? very, very, very much. So essentially, Punjabis have always been a very peace-loving people. 
um, it's like hard to sort of square it with partition violence because that's always like this exception where it sort of completely goes from the people who've been uh, reading and celebrating Bullisha and Sikhism, like really syncretic forms of um, being together, Hindus and Muslims, to really the people who kill their brothers and neighbors to a degree that we've never really seen before. But I don't yeah. really see... I wouldn't really say that there's a propensity to violence that I see like in Pakistanis more than I would in any other in any other group. I do believe that the issue of blasphemy in particular arouses people in Pakistan more than it does in other That's what I places. Mean. But but that I do really think comes from the fact not because they are more open to the idea of violence, but it comes from the conceptual shift that they believe that they are better Muslims if they follow the rule that they have to avenge the killing, right? If it becomes part of your theological DNA, that you say that, well, in order to, if I avenge the killing, I'll be a better Muslim. Like that is the fulfillment fulfillment of my faith. That right. is the indicator in which I measure my faith. Then you have your answer, right? Then right. violence just becomes one step in which you can, you know, fulfill like your theological um, obligation. So it can, you can say that it's like a lack of religious education that's that's causing people to do this because it's- I wouldn't I wouldn't really even make a normative suggestion because I'm like I'm kind of neutral so after reading this debate for a really long time and devoting way too much time on the topic of blasphemy than a single individual should in his lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, There is weight to the arguments on both sides, right? So there's weight on both sides. The only thing is that it's become all-consuming. So as opposed to other Muslim countries that have managed to shift the conversation to other issues and used those mental energies in order to facilitate progress. What we have in Pakistan is that there's a constant short circuit of the entirety of any other type of debate in order to return to blasphemy, outrage, violence. And that's really the part that, uh, that that, that I feel should change. Because at the end of the day, you know, there's a legitimate theological there's legitimate theological ground on which you can stand in order to say that blasphemy against the prophet um, can be a key issue in your um, religious matrix. So it's not an outrageous position to take. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so fascinating. I hope we can we can continue the conversation like in the future, maybe on the Nehru book or on something else. Yeah, I'm going to read it and then I'll message you if you're down to, if you have any free time to point, uh, do this again. And uh, now you know the drill, you know the format, so it shouldn't be that hard anymore. <laughs> Super cool. Thank you, Austin. Uh, thank you so much. Take care. Okay, take care. Peace out.